I want to invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 2. We began chapter 2 last week, and we'll, we're about 10 verses in. Uh, and that's where we'll be this morning, Galatians chapter 2. A word which we heard early on in life, many of us did, uh, and what it looks like early in life, it, sometimes it takes manifestations, takes different manifestation, I think, as we age. But the term is peer pressure. Uh, peer pressure, it's a term with which we became familiar early, early on. And at a, at a young age when we expressed a desire to, to act or to be like so-and-so either down the street or across the way, wanting to follow them, um, in essence, you, you might remember the question which many of us were asked as children by our parents, well, if so-and-so jumped off a cliff, would you do the same thing? <laughs> uh, I know I've asked my children that, that question as well when there's this desire to be like someone or so-and-so, really it's, we don't want to be different. We, we've all known a need to be like someone else, even if it's for a brief time. Um, and as adults, it reveals itself in us in different ways. Uh, uh, sometimes as we compare lifestyles or purchase power, the ability to have certain things. And sometimes it, it happens when we're criticized openly or perhaps we feel criticized inwardly. No one likes criticism, do we? No one enjoys it. And last time as we began in Galatians chapter 2, we saw in Paul's letter that, that Paul and Barnabas and Titus, they, they went to Jerusalem to the then home church, and they met with Peter, Peter the one, the man who walked with Jesus, and, and leaders there of the Jerusalem church, and, and there's a little bit of confusion as to they're trying to sort things out and make sure that everybody's preaching and teaching the same thing, and, and things end on a positive note. They do. And, but this morning, things will take a turn. In chapter 2, verse 11, Paul writes, he says, when Peter came to Antioch, it looks a little different. <laughs> when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because Peter stood condemned. These are persons of whom you've heard, persons you've seen in pictures, persons you've seen on church stained glass, Paul and Peter, and now they're opposed. What, what gives? What's going on? Strong words from Paul condemning Peter. What, what's happened? Well, Paul writes, For prior to the coming of some men from James, and James is pastor there, he's the brother of Jesus, he's the pastor of the church, well, some Jerusalem believers, they come to visit. But before they come to visit, Peter eats with Gentile believers. Sharing a meal, shares a meal with these Gentile believers. But when these folks from Jerusalem, when they show up, Peter begins to withdraw and separate himself because he fears criticism. So, so why is eating with Gentiles a big deal? Well, 
several months ago, we were looking at Acts, and Acts chapter 10 gives us the best explanation. So let me just hit a couple high points from Acts 10, because the story there gives the best explanation about this eating with Gentiles, why it's a big deal, or why it was a big deal at a certain time. Peter, back then, was staying with a man named Simon at a house in Joppa by the sea. And, and one, after, one well, afternoon, it's lunchtime, Peter goes up to the top of the house to pray, and, and he falls into a trance. And, and Peter sees the sky open in this trance. And the sky, he looks up, and he sees this object, like a great sheet, descend, lowered by four corners to the ground. And, and on this sheet are all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth, and birds of the sky. And then this voice says to Peter, Rise and kill and eat. And Peter says, Oh, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. And Okay, so to what is Peter referring then? Well, back, back in Exodus and following, those first five books of the, of the Bible, the Old Testament... When God's people were being led through the wilderness from Egypt by the Lord and Moses, the Lord gave directions about what they could eat. And, and, and there's an extensive and detailed list of animals deemed clean or unclean in Leviticus chapter 11. And among the unclean are all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the sky... And so Peter has this on his mind when he, in essence, has this vision of this, what it is, it's a picnic blanket. <laughs> it descends and all these things, and then the Lord says, rise and kill and eat, and he's going, whoa, hold up. Well, the voice calls to him a second time and says, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. And this happens actually three times in this vision, and immediately the object is taken up into the sky well, until this vision-slash-visitation from the Lord, there were, as I shared with you, there were eating considerations. There were things to consider. But see, that is now no longer the case. And this vision happens right before there's a knock on the door for Peter to go visit a man named Cornelius, if you remember. Cornelius was this Italian centurion who happens to be a God follower. He's not a Jew. He's, he's a Gentile. And Peter goes to visit Cornelius, and when he meets Cornelius and Cornelius' friends and family, they say, give us a word, brother Peter. And Peter says, you yourselves know that it is forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner. And yet, God has shown me that I am not to call any person unholy or unclean. Peter is a Christian. He's an apostle who, who walked with and he talked with and he lived with Jesus. You know the stories. He has seen Jesus. Peter has seen Jesus himself step across both nationalistic and ceremonial lines with the gospel for the gospel. And, and Peter has seen, has seen Jesus heal the servant of a Roman centurion. Remember, you remember that from Matthew? And, and Jesus has healed the daughter of a Canaanite woman. Peter witnessed this. He's witnessed Jesus heal the unclean leper. 
And this vision which the Lord brought to Peter about food really is about more than food. It's about engaging all people with the gospel, not only the Jews. Well, so what is happening now? Well, in Galatians 2, there's your backstory. In Galatians 2, when, when Peter first arrives, he's eating with these Gentile believers. They're not circumcised. We've talked about that in recent weeks. But afterward, when these brothers from Jerusalem show up, Peter won't eat with Gentiles anymore. He's afraid of criticism. And, and, and I don't want to be too hard on Peter. I mean, let's be honest. No, no one, unless he or she is a sociopath, likes to look for trouble. We've seen Peter's weakness with crowds and criticism before, haven't we? Do you remember the night which Peter denied Jesus three times? We all have our blind spots, don't we? We all have our blind spots. And, and see, Peter is hanging with these new Gentile believers, these new believers, and he eats with them, and then he pulls away. And so at best, Peter is seen as inconsistent. And at worst, well, it's certainly not a good image for the fellowship of the church, is it? And to make matters worse, other Jewish Christians begin to follow Peter's example, including Barnabas. Barnabas, yes, the son of encouragement. You've, you, we've read of Barnabas. He's that early supporter of the church, sold land to, to give seed money to the early church and, and has the back of those, those apostles, the son of encouragement, even Barnabas. He's a church planner, runs around with Paul, sharing the gospel and planning churches, discipling. Even Barnabas is carried away. And Paul, Paul says the rest of the Jews, they, they, they've joined Peter in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas is carried away by their hypocrisy. And so what happens? Paul calls Peter out. Calls him out on this behavior. And, and he says, When I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, that, that the gospel is available for all, I said to Peter in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? And then he says, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from the Gentiles. So if you're listening, what you've heard me just share seems incredibly rude. He calls the Gentiles sinners. Let me explain. Paul is saying to Peter, you know, they're both, they were both good little Jewish boys. They grew up in good little Jewish households. And this is what Paul is saying. We are children of promise of Abraham. We were born into it. A covenant people whom God set aside to himself. And we have his word. We have the law. And then Paul is saying, but this is what makes it different for all of us. We have come to accept what God has revealed with Jesus as Messiah. Jesus as the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. And, and, and it's in essence, Paul is saying to Peter, we stand to be co-inheritors of the kingdom of God because of what Jesus 
alone has made possible through his sacrifice and his resurrection. We're not like those who've not had this same revelation. You know, there's a lot of people out here that are unsaved. Jews and Gentiles, they've not heard the gospel. We're different than, from them. We have a, really a responsibility to them to share the gospel. I mean, I mean, for the church, for us today in 2022, if we've heard the call of salvation and we've turned from sin and we've turned from self and we've turned to the things of God, called on Jesus to be not just the, well, to be Savior of our soul, but when we call Him to be Savior, we're actually saying, be the Lord of my life. We become one of God's children. We're set apart as His people, just as Israel was set apart in the Old Testament. And, and we have a new nature. And we've been set free from the shackles of sin. And that, <laughs> that's the good news of the gospel. You and I are set free this morning. If we've turned to Jesus, allowing Him to be Lord, then we're set free. We've heard the gospel, and that's good news. But, why do we have the temptation to want to live like everyone else? You see, back in the day, Israel was set apart by God to be His people. A unique relationship where God would dwell among His people. And all the other peoples there in the land of Canaan, they had their human kings. Imperfect, fallible, sinful. And what happens? Well, Israel wants a king like every other nation. Israel wants to look like everyone else. Israel really is afraid to look different. And Samuel the prophet, if you remember, said, whoa, you don't want to turn from God. And God said, Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And we see how that turned out. Well, then Paul, he goes from this address toward Peter, and he, he kind of he shifts gears. He, he shifts it now into about third gear, and he says, Nevertheless, knowing that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, since by works of the law no flesh will be justified. Okay, well, what, what's he saying? That's a lot. And, and some translations cast things a little differently. The New Living Translation shares the theology of that verse maybe a little easier to hear. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law, tried to fulfill the law on our own, for no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. We can't do it on our own. And then Paul says, but if while seeking to be justified in Christ, to be, to be found worthy, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Far from it. Again, sometimes it helps reading a different translation. 
Suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and then we are found guilty because we've abandoned the law. Would that mean that Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not. Christ is not an enabler of sin. That's blasphemy. In our day, we have lots of voices saying lots of things, sharing lots of different gospels, quote-unquote gospels. Saying that God smiles on this, the Lord smiles on that. The Lord is not an enabler of sin. That's blasphemy. The law shows us a holy God. The law shows a holy God and shows an unholy man. The law shows us to be sinners. The law shows us our need for forgiveness. The law shows us our need for righteousness, but the law cannot grant righteousness to us. So scrap the law, right? What did Jesus say about scrapping the law? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus himself says... I came to fulfill the law, not to do away with it. To say that we don't need the law is to say that we don't need Jesus. To say that we don't need the law. The law won't save us, only Jesus will. But the law tells us who tells us the identity of God and tells us of the state of who we are. To say that we don't need the law is to say we don't need Jesus. That's a problem. We need Jesus. Jesus is our rescue. Paul then goes on to say, For if I rebuild what I've once destroyed, I prove myself to be a wrongdoer. In other words, why would I intentionally go back into a system of living that won't fix my condition? That's, ministerially speaking, stupid. And then Paul says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. And then one of the most beautiful verses in Scripture, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. What did we sing earlier? He he took my sins and my sorrows and he made them his very own. He bore my burden to Calvary. New Living Translation casts that verse in this manner. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The old self is to be crucified. You see, the gospel is a gospel of change. It's a gospel of transformation. 
Every time in our kingdom encounters when Jesus would have an encounter with someone, he or she would come away changed. The blind would see. The crippled would walk. The dead would rise. The gospel is the gospel of transformation. And, And Paul says... I do not nullify the grace of God. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law by itself, then Christ died needlessly. Jesus came to deal with sin. Matthew chapter 4, we see that. First words of Jesus on the scene are repent. Jesus came to deal with sin. And you know what? If we can save ourselves by our own efforts, then Christ died for nothing. So what does this mean and why does it matter? What what does Scripture tell us? If if I no longer live, if you no longer live, but, but Christ in you, Christ in me, this has tremendous implications on relationships with my family, your family, neighbors, and yourself and myself. (laughs) If I no longer live but Christ in me, this will change how I'm seen by my family in private. How how will Christ transform the way you and I are seen by our families? We've heard of radical transformations in marriage, in family relationships, parents to children, Husband to wife. If I no longer live but Christ in me, this will impact my relationship, how I'm seen by those who've known me in public. It will change my reputation, possibly. Maybe our adoring public <laughs> has seen us to be a certain way for such a significant amount of time that that maybe we feel like we risk losing those old friendships and those old spheres of influence because of gospel transformation. You know, actually the gospel should influence all those friendships. Not I alive, but Christ in me, Christ in you. That will impact... The one, the one you see and I see in the mirror every morning. The one with whom we live 24, 7, 365. One's self is one's biggest critic. And when Christ in me, Christ in you, when it becomes a reality... Changes everything. I mean, if you remember the story of Peter's betrayal of Jesus after Jesus' arrest and the trial there in the garden, Peter betrays Jesus. Peter wept bitterly after he denied Jesus those three times. The guilt for Peter was almost too much to bear. It was for Judas. Can you and I handle the criticism of being different? 
Can you and I handle the reality that we must consider Christ before our critics? And if you and I have turned from sin, what we're saying is that we consider Christ to be Lord, not just Savior of the soul, but to be Lord of our, of our lives and our attitudes and our relationships and our conversations. That we follow Him. He sets the agenda. And if we follow Him, what we're following... We've got to follow His Word because to simply say Jesus has saved me and I'm free and I can do whatever I want to do, that in essence makes Christ the great enabler of sin. And that, friends, is blasphemy. We have to follow His Word. Despite our critics. There's one more thing. Paul said this in verse 14. If you, being a Jew says this to Peter, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? In essence, how will we point others to follow Christ if our lives, our attitudes, our mouths, our comments, maybe our own criticisms, show no evidence of doing the same? 